Welcome to Asking for a Friend with me, your host, Katrina Buffard. I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. And this podcast covers any and every topic relating to sex, intimacy, or relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. This season of Asking for a Friend is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. For a lovely little discount, stay tuned until the end of this episode. Asking for a Friend is finally back. And while I know you've been waiting so patiently, it's been worth the wait, I do promise. I've been speaking to the most incredible, knowledgeable and interesting people to bring you the best season yet. And what a way to start, bringing you a conversation I had with one of the most impactful people in the field of sexuality. If you've spent any time with me, you'll have heard me say that she's the person to follow in the field of sex, that her books are an absolute must read and in my opinion should actually be syllabus in all schools. And now having met her, I can say she's the coolest and just the nicest person. She's a prolific sex educator and best-selling author of two books, First, Come As You Are, and second, Burnout, which she co-authored with her identical twin sister, Amelia. She travels all over the world, training therapists, medical professionals, college students, and the general public about the science of women's sexual well-being. And she is none other than the amazing Emily Nagoski. I have been looking forward to this conversation for so long, and I've had to really compose myself and calm my fangirl feelings about it. But Emily, thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's my pleasure. It's it's crazy to think that I first came across your work when you did the Sex Nerds Guide to Orgasms. Yeah, like 2010, long time ago a really really long time ago I hadn't even qualified yet as a sexologist and I was getting into it and really starting to explore kind of research topics in the field and came across your work and then heard you were bringing a book out bought it as soon as it came out heard you were bringing a second book out bought that as soon as it came out and now you have another book coming out the second edition of come as you are right Revised and updated. It's what I did with my uh, pandemic. That's what you spent your lockdown doing? Yeah. It was a very effective use of lockdown time. (laughs) I think I'm very chuffed with how you used your lockdown. Super chuffed. I actually, I am too. It was great to have a reason to stop traveling and just sit down and get really deep into the science and to the work of translating what the research was saying into something that human beings can understand and processing. So come as you are originally went to press in 2014, came out in 2015. And then I've been on the road like half of my life since then talking to anyone who will listen about the science of women's sexual well-being. And I've learned a lot from the kinds of questions people ask. Can you examples? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, So one of the most impactful was when I was in the UK, uh, I had lunch with a couple of friends who were just sort of asking, like they were asking offhand, so how do couples, you know, I guess, sustain a strong sexual connection for the long term? They were like married, they had two young kids, uh, and they were experiencing all the things that young couples with two young kids experience. 
And I said the thing that I had been saying for a long time, which is uh, responsive desire. You don't worry about craving sex. You worry about showing up, put your body in the bed. I said, you let your skin touch your partner's skin and your brain will wake up and go, oh, right. I like this. I like this person. And as I was saying that, which is the kind of thing I say all the time, the wife and the couple like pushed back from the table with like a sneer of disgust on her face. And I was like, okay, so this is not a desire question. This is a pleasure question. You don't like the sex that is on offer in this relationship. That is the problem. It's at, and so, so I took that experience and learning about the inadequacy of just talking about responsive desire um, and I dug really deeply into the research of Peggy Kleinplatz, who is a sex therapist and researcher in Canada, whose work I just fucking adore. And her optimal sexual experiences research, it turns out. So what she did was interview dozens of people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives. So question one, what does extraordinary sex look like? And two, how do you get to be a person who has extraordinary sex? Right. And right. And is there a lesson that these extraordinary lovers can teach sex therapy clients, people who haven't had sex in 10 years, people who are struggling so much, they've come to see a sex therapist. And uh, the answer to the first question was, uh, there are sort of eight components of optimal sexual experiences, and not one of those eight major components is spontaneous desire. The like spontaneous craving to put your tongue in somebody else's mouth or like that spontaneous desire is not part of what spectacular sex looks like, according to the people who have spectacular sex. Two, how do you get to be a person who has this kind of sex? Well, for one thing, the most typical age at which people had their first extraordinary sexual experience. Any guess? I'm going to say mid 30s. 55. What? Yeah. Right? What? So Peggy deliberately sought out populations who would have had to find their way around the usual scripts. So she included a lot of uh, LGBTQ folks, a lot of trans and non-binary folks, a lot of kinky folks, and seniors, people who've been in 50-year relationships who have great sex in those 50-year relationships. Um, so her population may have skewed older than the typical sex research. Most sex research is done on college students because that's who's available. They are not the people who are having great sex. Oh my God. No, they are absolutely right? not. Absolutely. Was that the best sex in your life when you were in college? Without a doubt. No, like for Never. sure the worst. Never. <laughs> Literally the worst. Nobody knew what the fuck we were doing. Right. So uh, how do you get to be a person who, you know, somewhere in midlife is like, you know what? I'm going to start having spectacular life-changing sex. How about that? The way that happens is you uh, transform everything you thought you knew about sex, pleasure, gender, love, safety, boundaries, communication, everything. You fundamentally rethink. You ignore all the messages you were always taught and you replace that content with really profound awareness of your own internal experience and really deep attention to your partner's experience. And that's a sort of like highly experiential educational process. 
you begin by teaching people what's actually true about how sex works in human beings, and you grant them space to integrate that information and allow it to change their relationship with sexuality. So it's not about desire. It's about setting yourself free from cultural stuff. And I get that when I say it's not about desire, it's about setting yourself free from cultural noise. Uh, setting yourself free is a lot harder than, for, for example, just taking a pill, right? So this is, I wish it were like an easy prescriptive answer. It is not. It is to begin recognizing that you've been taught some scripts about what's true about sex and literally everything you were ever taught for the first, for sure, 20 years of your life was wrong. Literally every single thing was wrong. And you have to start from scratch. And when you do that, the reward is sex that isn't just very pleasurable. It's sex that deepens your understanding of yourself. It deepens your connection with your partner. You learn about yourself by learning about your partners and you are attuned to your own pleasure and your partner's pleasure in a way that blends them together. And when they blend together, they are bigger than anything two human individually can produce. So is it worth it? Yeah. It, I mean, it changes people's lives. So one, so it, as an example of like the questions I get asked that change the newcomers as you are, it started with that couple who it wasn't a responsive desire problem. Um, do people listening already know what responsive desire is? I would love you to just explain the difference between spontaneous and responsive because you, you do such a beautiful, um, you know, you do it such a beautiful justice in your book. So could you just touch on the difference between the two? Yeah. Sort of the simple 101 is that spontaneous desire is the kind of desire we're all taught we're supposed to have, um, where it just appears. Erica, Erica Moen, who is the cartoonist who illustrated Come As You Are, draws spontaneous desire as a lightning bolt to the genitals. It just kaboom, you just want it. You're walking down the street and kaboom. And uh, it turns out that absolutely is one of the normal healthy ways to experience desire. But then there's this other way of experiencing desire. If spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation of pleasure, responsive desire emerges in response to pleasure. So you can see how if you do not like the sex you are having, if the sex is not pleasurable, you're not going to have spontaneous desire and you're not going to have responsive desire because there's no pleasure for you to respond to. And so that is what led me to create the change. Because if you, the, the way Peggy Kleinplatz puts it, and like when you hear this sentence, you're like, yes, of course that's true, Emily. But it's also like a totally radical transformative sentence. It is not pathological not to want sex you don't like. That is such a valid point. And I I want to I want to just point out for my listeners who, who have been kind of with me on this podcast journey. I did a fantastic episode with my dear friend and supervisor Christopher Fox, who's in Sydney, and he said the exact same thing. It he put it, yours is 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 a, a little bit more um comprehensive. He said something, it was it was we were jumbling over our words. It is okay, you do not have to want to want sex. There is nothing right. wrong with you if you don't want to want to want to have sex or sorry, right. lost in the wants. So, so this is the crazy thing because we get kind of molded and squashed into this, this, what, I don't know, society expects us to be. And that gets put out into the world. And then we have sexual experiences and we're like, 
but mine doesn't fit in with that one that I was told it should fit in with. So what's wrong with me? And this was one of the, the, the most profound things for me with the work that you've done and why I guess you wrote this book was after teaching students sexu human sexuality, you had feedback from countless students saying, I am normal. That was so utterly profound for them to actually realize that the mold they had tried to be shoved into was not actually real. It was society, society's religions, cultures, expectations of what we should look like sexually. And it couldn't be further from what actually happens. And to pick up on what you were saying around, uh, around you know, it's, it's, it really isn't that easy to just kind of get into it. I, I say to all my clients, sex is all about letting go. And actually, that's the hardest thing to do. It's the most difficult thing to do because you're thinking about the cat staring at you and you're thinking about what your mother said to you when you were growing up about what sex should look like or what you mustn't do and what will happen if you have sex. And then the sexual trauma you experienced as a teenager is coming through. It's impossible. Yeah, except it's not impossible. It's just very difficult and you have to decide. The thing for me is, why is it such a universal experience to have an idea in your head of what sex is supposed to be like and decide that if you're not like that, then you're the problem? Why isn't it the most typical experience to learn what sex is supposed to be like according to a cultural script and say, well, that's not what I'm like. So it's the script that's wrong, not me. And that's the revolution that happens in people's brains is they're like, oh, the script is wrong. There's, there's who I'm supposed to be. And then there's who the, I truly am. And who I truly am is right and good and lovable and deserving of pleasure and beautiful and spectacular. And, and this is a lie. Expected me is a fantasy that the world is imposing on me. I, it's. Why exactly do we live in a world that tells us to be something other than who we are? There's a lot of reasons, but I mean, it's white supremacist is heteropatriarchal, rapidly exploitative late capitalism, right? People who feel not. like shit yeah. buy more shit. Yeah. We need to control how women feel about their bodies so that we can control women's bodies. We need to reinforce the idea that people with different skin and hair textures have different levels of right to pleasure and joy. Yikes. So one of the things that has grown increasingly explicit in my work is that the script is not benign. We're not just lied to for no particular reason. They continue to lie to us. These cultural messages continue to be wrong because it benefits, like somebody's got a vested interest in making sure we hate our bodies and we do not have access to pleasure. So that when we are like, you know what, you're lying to me and I don't believe you and I'm just going to go ahead and have ecstatic, joyful sex, we're actually making the world a better place because we're not feeding the system that wants to deprive some people of power. It's just, it's so jaw-dropping for me. And, in, in, you know, we've been speaking now 15, 20 minutes only, and I'm just there's so much happening in my brain about what you've said, despite having read your books, despite having followed your work for so long. And even in just the, the start of this podcast, that you've said so much that so many people, particularly women, need to hear 
we need to hear it. We need to be given permission to be who we are, not who we think we should be or who we're told we should be. We need to know that how we are is completely normal and we can explore who we are. And I think that ultimately we don't have to adhere, assuming we have the means and ability to, you know, we're in an environment, in a situation where we can, we don't have to adhere to the rules being placed on us by the community around us, by the culture around us, the religion around us, and so on. We don't. And why do we feel like we have to? So sex is a social behavior, but how do we learn all the other social behaviors? How do we learn how to make friends? How do we learn table manners? How do we learn like basic social interaction? Like if you just like are buying a coffee, how do you learn that? By observing what other people do and uh, with sex, because as a species, we're quite private. We're not like different cultures vary in exactly how private they are about sexuality, but compared to bonobo chimpanzees, who are one of our closest neighbors, evolutionarily speaking, um, we're a very private species sexually. So how do we learn about sex? We are not doing it by direct observation. These days we're doing it with God, porn. I was about to say direct observation through porn, which makes me cringe a little bit inside. Yeah. And I, I feel like there's nothing inherently not okay about porn. Um, especially if you're watching like feminist sex positive, uh, what Tristan Taramino calls farm to table porn, where you know for oh, sure, right? Great name. It's kind of like the Erica Lust porn of the world, farm to table. Yeah, Erica Lust is absolutely one of those feminist porn producers. Um, you know for sure that the people involved in making it were totally at choice in what behaviors they engaged in. They got to choose their partners. They were enthusiastically participating and could use whatever protective barriers they were interested in using, right? Like that's great porn. And even then learning how to have sex by watching even great porn is like learning how to drive from watching like NASCAR or other car racing. Like it's a closed course. You're watching professionals with a pit crew. So it's not how it actually works in real life. It's entertainment, essentially. Um, so we have, so we don't have like a realistic script in our heads. The way we have a realistic script for how to make friends or just how to engage with the person behind the checkout counter at the grocery store. So we have to assume that the script we were taught abstractly by our religious institution by our larger culture, by our family of origin. We have to assume that they were benign and not lying to us and not manipulating us and not trying to um, poison us. So why, so I don't know. So why do the starting question was, uh, why do we feel like we have to? We feel like there, this is where, so that story about all of the students who said that the most important thing they learned from my class is that they're normal, that they're not broken, was me presenting science and saying, here's what's actually true, and them recognizing the discord between what they have always learned and what the science truly says, and trying on the possibility that what the science says, which is a description of who they are too, is the true thing rather than the stories they were told their whole lives. And I don't know what the magic 
formula is for helping a person to believe that what their own internal experience is telling them is more reliable than any message than is more reliable than me. Like if what I say does not match with your internal experience, your internal experience is the part that's right. The part of you that is wise is the part of you that you should listen to. And if come as you are, or a sex therapist or anything else helps you to feel more empowered and tells the part of you that is wise, something that makes your life better. Great. And if I say something, if you're like, but I have spontaneous desire. Okay. Well, you say that only a third of women at most are reliable orgasmic from vaginal intercourse and the rest aren't, but I am. And so I'm not going to worry about all this clitoral stimulation that you're always talking about. Like listen to your body. You're the one who knows. Yes, 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 yes. And yes, again, it's so interesting how few of us, and I, I will put myself into this category as well, because for so long it was like this, do not listen to our bodies. Do not listen to what our brain is telling us. We think, oh, no, no, it can't be like that. Or no, but it, I probably shouldn't be. Listen to your body. If something feels good for you, go with it. Just because your friend says she does something differently. You know, I, I had a, a wonderful like good for her. Just yeah, because exactly. that's true for her has nothing to do with you. Unless exactly. the two of you are sex partners, there is nothing to do with you. Exactly. I, I, I had such a wonderful conversation with Dr. Laurie Mintz um, for the last episode of the season, uh, last season, actually. And she was sharing her findings from research that less than 1% of women, when they masturbate, use um, internal penetration of some form. Yeah. Less than 1%. But that doesn't mean there aren't women. There's less than one. We totally do. And they do. And they, they're getting immense pleasure from some form of, of penetration when they're masturbating. That is what works for them. If that's not work, what works for you, that doesn't matter. You do what works for you. But I think the real challenge here, again, it comes back to that kind of cultural, societal, religious mold that we're all put into is it, it, it really speaks for me to that idea, again, of permission. We're not told that, hey, it's okay if you don't climax during, you know, sexual intercourse, despite very few women actually climaxing during sexual intercourse, uh, well, with a male partner. And we're, we're, not, we're not told it's okay if you don't like to touch yourself, if that's something you aren't comfortable with. So we're never, no one ever says to us, hey, it's okay, that permission's never given. I, for one, in line with communication, think that those are kind of the biggest problems that get in the way of us experiencing pleasure, you're nodding. Is that something you think too? Oh God, yes. So uh, you brought up people who do not feel comfortable touching themselves, masturbating, which like I prescribe masturbation. I think everyone should masturbate. They should start as early in their lives as possible. If you haven't yet, start now. It's never too late. It's like saving for retirement. It's never too late. Get started <laughs> now. But the earlier you start, the bigger the dividends. Absolutely. And it's totally true that some people do not feel good about masturbation for whatever reason. And it doesn't matter why. The fact is they don't feel good about it. My starting point there is, so what part of your body do you feel okay touching? Are you allowed to touch your own face and hair? Can you touch your own hands? Can you touch your feet? Can you touch your arms? Can you touch the skin of your back? How about your knees, calves? Like what parts of you can you touch? Because you are capable of paying attention to what sensation feels like in your body. 
regardless of what body parts you touch. And even when people are masturbating in a way that includes genital stimulation, my recommendation is always to begin not with genital touch, but with all this like peripheral touch, starting all these parts of yourselves that are very far away from your genitals. And when you move to your genitals, don't touch them directly. Just think about them. Just that's a really intense amount of stimulation, especially for people who are sort of novices to stimulating their genitals. So there are plenty. And when people who don't feel good about masturbating are presented with the idea that they can touch other parts of their bodies, it presents them like, where are the boundaries? And that necessarily raises the question of like, why is that the boundary? Are my breasts off limits or are my breasts within bounds? Does it depend on whether I've had children or not? Because that changes what my breasts mean. Does it depend on whether I'm pre or postmenopausal? Because that changes what everything in my body means culturally. So begin like so people go on whole different kinds of journeys with the advice of like if you don't want to touch your genitals, don't touch your genitals. And what parts of you can you touch in order to learn what pleasure feels like? And I get nerdy about it, of course. Like I talk about the different kinds of nerve endings that we have in our peripheral nervous system, like the different kinds, like light touch is one set of nerve endings. Deep touch and vibration is another set of nerve endings. Stretch is another set of nerve endings. Uh, potential threat, the nociceptors, is another set of nerve endings. Like, there's, like what are the kinds of sensations your body is capable of sending up to your brain. And because of the nerdy brain stuff in chapter three about context, what context can you create that allows your brain to interpret any different kind of sensation as pleasurable? This is the question of like, do I like this? What does pleasure even feel like in my body? And pleasure comes in so many different sensory modalities and from like literally every body part. One of the like wrestling matches I had with my copy, I went through five copy edits with the new Come As You Are because the first one uh, was like real transphobic and sex negative and made a bunch of changes that uh, I was like, we need to start from scratch. We need to undo all of these things. And one of them is in the part where I talk about uh, that the brain is your most important sex organ, mm -hmm. which is, that's just true. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause your brain is the part that governs all the rest of it without your brain. The rest of it wouldn't matter. She changed it to largest sex organ, mm -hmm. which is not true. It's not your largest sex organ is your skin. Mm -hmm. It's all over. And any sensation in your skin can be interpreted by your brain as erotic. If you are already like super turned on and feeling trusting and have a great connection with anybody else who might be involved in the sexual experience. Um, so people often talk about your brain being your biggest sex organ. It is just your most important sex organ. Size is not everything but let's recognize how powerful your skin is. It's literally everywhere. One of the things I want to pick up on is, is how you have just described that pleasure is a learned experience. Mm -hmm. You have to learn what is pleasurable for you and what was pleasurable. No. What? We have to unlearn the barrier that stands between us and recognizing pleasure because human babies, right. when they're born, do not have to learn what pleasure feels like. They are they are pleasure pain machines. like primal like it's, it's yeah. what, we, what we need we need soothing and comfort and we need food those are the only two things we require to survive right 
but safety, heat, but all the things that come from being held by an adult caregiver, right? Yeah. And like, we are really good as infants at expressing how we feel. Every adult caregiver who has ever fed a newborn infant knows what it feels like to hold pure, deep joy, satisfaction, bliss in their arms, because that's all a baby has access to before we complicate their feelings. But between the day you're born and the day you're listening to this, you've been exposed to a whole bunch of messages about like who has permission to experience pleasure and what kinds of stimulation are supposed to give you pleasure. So you have to unlearn all that stuff and just re-engage with what your body itself actually is saying to you, which is complicated because we like people like me, sex educators like me are like, just look, tell your partner what you want. Tell your partner what you like. And first of all, people don't know what they want or like. And second of all, what you want and like changes depending on the context. So something that feels good today may not necessarily feel good tomorrow, depending on how stressed out you are, how sleep deprived you are, what's going on in your relationship, how you feel about your body today. Like the, anything can change today to change what global, feels pleasurable for you. A global pandemic. That's a right. massive one that changes the context of our sexual you laugh so mind. hard at the, there were all these predictions about like a, you know, pandemic baby boom. And I was oh. like, you guys do not understand no idea. how sex works. I've spoken about it in many of my, many of my podcasts, how at the start, when, when kind of countries across the world started locking down and, and we could see it in South Africa, kind of like a tsunami heading South towards us. And a lot of people were saying, Oh, I'm going to be at home with my partner all the time. It's going to be so great. We're going to have so much sex. And I was like, call me in about a month. Let's, let's just revisit this conversation because no, I don't think that's what's going to be happening. And while of course, yes, like, we are all different and we all need to listen to our bodies and do what works. There were some people who found lockdown and the time together and the pandemic magnificently wonderful for their sex lives. I have never talked to one of those people. I know for sure know that they some. exist because people vary. Yeah, I, I do know some. I, I have okay, one, great. one dear, dear person in my life in particular who's now actually expecting a baby, which is great. So she, she, she goes against the grain. But the reality is, and I can throw myself into this group as well, there was just wait, context. How mm-hmm. on earth are you supposed to want something where you need to kind of let go and be able to en- enjoy pleasure and explore when you're worried? Relax and focus on the present moment and not worry about. And you spend 24-7 with your other half for oh God. 10 months. I mean, I mean, I love him dearly, but, you know, I love other people too. So, right. you know, seeing other people's faces is just a an important experience for us as human beings as is seeing our partners. So, mm-hmm. so context, right? This is such a massive part of your book and, and your work. And it is one of the messages I try to convey to my clients or anyone really who will listen to me in, in, in the way that you have conveyed it because you do it so beautifully to, it, it, it makes so much sense when you read that chapter in your book And again, I have been working in this field for a decade. I I trained in human sexuality like you did. I I have the backing and the qualifications. And yet still, I read that chapter and it was like a light bulb moment went off. None of the textbooks had ever explained it as... Why didn't they ever explain it? I don't know. That's how I felt. I was like somebody... Like, I, I know the science exists. We all intuitively know this is true. Why has no one ever written down the science that just explains to us why the way we perceive sensations varies from context to context? Why has nobody done? And I was like, fine, I guess it's my job 
And so like, I, I can't take credit for it. All I did was find a way to explain it and put it in a book. Well, it you was, did a bloody great job at it. So tell <laughs> my listeners, what do you mean by context? Why is it so important when it comes to our sexual experience? Yeah. So how nerdy are we going to get? We all know the experience superficially in the context of like tickling. Tickling is not a thing everybody enjoys, but like you can imagine a situation where you are already like deep into erotic things and you're turned on, you're three quarters of the way to orgasm and your partner like pins you down and slaps your ass. That can feel great. If by contrast, you're in the middle of like changing the baby's diaper and you are wrist deep in baby poop and your partner grabs your hair and slaps your ass. <laughs> is that, is, is that going to feel sexy? It's the same partner. It's the same sensation, but it feels totally different. Why? And it turns out the way our limbic system, our emotional brain reacts to sensation changes depending on our external circumstances and our internal mental state. So when you are stressed, 90% of the nucleus accumbens shell becomes devoted to avoidance motivation, which is like threat response. This is something dangerous. I need to keep away from it. So that when you are stressed out, like you're trying to get out the door and get the kids to put their shoes on and your partner tries to touch you, like any touch is going to make you be like, will you get away? And this shows up. So like at the beginning, of a relationship when you're in the hot and heavy falling in love kind of thing. This is, this is, this, I don't tell a lot of stories from my life, but this is basically one of them. Um, you're like, you know, cooking the dinner for the sexy date and your partner comes in and starts kissing on you on the special places. And you're like, let's go screw dinner. It can burn. And then some number of years later, and maybe some kids, you're in the exact same kitchen making the exact same dinner and the exact same partner comes in and kisses you in the exact same special place. And you are like, can you set the table, please? <laughs> That's normal. That's, so That's normal. how our brains are supposed to work. Yeah, that is so normal. I love it. It's such a normal, wonderful example that you just used. And it, it really just like to sum it up, Context is the difference between a turn on and a turn off. Yeah, it's it's the reason why. I, so the the dual control model, when I learned it, like changed my life and my brain. Um, it's this basic idea that like there's sexual accelerator and a brake. The sexual accelerator responds to anything sex related that turns you on, and the brake responds to all the potential threats. Which like the starting point then is you'd be like, here are the things that hit the accelerator. Here are the things that hit the brake. How can I maximize accelerator and get rid of the brakes? But then it turns out things that hit the accelerator versus the brake change from day to day, from year to year, from change part your, your relationship status to your reproductive status to just like how stressed out you are today. And so when people can get past just like, this turns me on, this shuts me down and realize that what turns them on or shuts them down can change, that's when they start to get like super curious and exploratory about like their sexual context. You think about what's the great sex you've had in your life. What, cause it wasn't just like the behaviors that you engaged in that made it great. It was the whole context. You were on vacation and away from your kids. You were like in the hot and heavy fallen in love stage of your relationship. 
you were uh, in a semi-public place and there was some risk of getting caught and that really worked for you. Everybody's context is different, but if you can figure out what context allows your brain, creates that opportunity for your brain to interpret sensations as pleasurable, you now have control over when and how you get turned on. It's not rocket science, is it? It really, it's, and... You also have to recognize that you've got a script in your head that says what context is supposed to work for you. Like the student I had who literally thought her clitoris was broken because if her partner touched her clitoris before she had any other stimulation, it hurt. Hmm. This is a very sensitive organ for a lot of people who have clitorises. And uh, it turns out for this human, if she was not already turned on, her brain interpreted that sensation as painful. But when she was already half an hour into making out and doing other things, her body was very aroused, tuned to erotic connection. Then clitoral stimulation was a very pleasurable for her and led to orgasm. But she truly believed that her clitoris was the problem and not the context. But the reality is the context was not giving her brain enough of a reason to interpret that sensation as pleasurable and erotic. And that that's the, the what is the right word for it? But that's at the, the root of it, right? Is, is being able to recognize that you are not necessarily going to enjoy a sexual experience because the kids are screaming, the dog's barking, the, you know, the pasta on the stove is burning you're not going to be able to to engage your brain in the ways you need to engage that large sexual organ, not the largest, but the large sexual organ. You're not going to be able to engage it in the way you want to. And it's so interesting in, in the example that you've just given, I think a lot about the women I work with who experience sexual pain. It's the, it's the kind of thing that I work the most with. Their sexual experience is always or has always been prior to coming to seek um, sex therapy has always been entrenched in pain. So when they think of sex, the context is always pain inducing, always, 100% of the time, almost always. And well, sex, sexual intercourse, particularly. And it's so interesting. And, and I guess this is a very rewarding part of the work, being able to help these women move from a painful experience of sex to a pleasurable experience of sex. But what that takes, and it's sort of what you were speaking about earlier, is actually unlearning yes. what the brain has, the neural pathways that the brain has formed, and recognizing that we can take a different route, even though we're going to the same place. So I'll always use the analogy of like a you know, path in the forest. Your brain knows that there's a path to get from point A to point B. And it, it will take that path even without you trying it. It will be reactive. It will, even though you've pep-talked yourself and you've said, I've got to get in the mood tonight and tonight will be fine and it won't hurt this evening and I'm relaxed and I've lit a candle and, you know, we had a great bottle of wine. Your brain's made that pathway. And so... Right. None of that changes the fact that the pathway is on fire. <laughs> Way of describing it. I'm going to so use that for my Totally. <laughs> Like, it doesn't matter, like, what glass of wine you drink or how loving your parents, like, if the pathway is fire, if the pathway is pain, the pathway is pain. And you yeah. need a new pathway. Like, you need yes. a new path. Oh, totally. So th that's what sex therapy does. Have you read uh, Explain Pain and Explain Pain Supercharged? These uh, um, physiotherapists in Australia um, do this really big neuroscience work about 
um, teaching our brains about the hyperreactivity of our brains to pain after injury or traumatic experience uh, and like actual pragmatic ways to help people to unlearn that coupling um, between a sensation and your brain's interpretation of that. The reason earlier that I said nociception and uh, danger sensors, most people say nociception and say pain sensors. Pain does not happen in your skin. Pain happens in your brain. All of your pain happens in your brain. All of your pleasure happens in your brain. It's a question of how your brain interprets a sensation. Um, so their work has been really important for me in a grounding of understanding precisely why and how our brains will interpret some experiences as pleasurable and some as painful. And when you get entrenched in a, if there's not tissue damage, like if there's not an injury, but there maybe, maybe there was an injury six months ago or a year ago, there's an episiotomy where somebody got overly ambitious in their work on your genitals. Uh, your brain has learned pain associated with that. And even though it has healed, that association is still there. There's a pathway between your genitals and your brain and what it has learned is really intense pain. And our brains are so great. They will adapt and they will learn that lesson. And our brain will give us pain because it has learned that it is very important that when you're having that sensation, you feel like it's a threat and a danger and you need to get away from it. Like what a gift our brains have given us by giving us a pain response to that sensation. Except that now it's no longer a danger. The goal is for that sensation to be pleasurable, to be an experience of connection with a partner or with your own body. And so, yeah, you have to start entirely from scratch of relearning an experience of that sensation as safe. You have to find a pathway that's not on fire. Right. And like, that's really hard work. Yeah. And it's, it's very easy, especially where when we live in a world where like I just like I just invented that fire thing right now, but we do live in a world where people like watch videos of people walking across fire and are like, "Wow, look at how cool it is that you can walk across fire." Uh, and really, that's just a matter of like being really light footed. <laughs> and so we think it surely it's easier for me to just walk across the fire than to dig a new path. Digging trail is very tiring. Like it's hard work. You have to do something totally new. And like my student who thought her clitoris was broken, you have to be willing to accept that what's true for you is better than the lie you were told. That the path you dig for yourself is actually better than the path you have always been told you're supposed to walk, but it's on fire. Oh my gosh, I've, I'm so devastated we don't have hours and hours and hours because I feel like I could continue talking to you about this. I guess it's a, a good little segue for us when we're talking about the path being on fire and the stress response cycle and how mm -hmm. your body's, you know, your brain's like danger, danger, abort mission, abort mission, it, that we can segue nicely into just briefly touching on on stress because that was your your book with your sister, Amelia. And my God, again, mind blown. There was a really just, again, mind blowing line. I really need to come up with better vocab, but there was a really, really incredible line at the start of the book that when you told women you were, you were writing a book on burnout, you never got questions of what, what is that? What's burnout? Nobody yeah. ever. You got questions of when is the book coming out? Is, did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I did a presentation with a, a group of uh, gynecological oncologists. Wow. And they asked what I was working on next. And I was like, uh, it's a book called Burnout. And their whole response was, is it out now? <laughs> I mean, doesn't that speak volumes about the fact that there is, I mean, one, there's this year, particularly this past year, dire, never experienced anything like it, particularly in the mental health field. The demands on, on us are unprecedented. My own experience of burnout has been intense. But you writing this book a few years ago, and already we're in a in a we're stuck in a narrative of rest as a reward. We're stuck in a stuck in a yeah. kind of a hamster wheel cycle of you've got to work hard, you have to work hard, you've got to kill yourself, and only once you break can you stop. Right. What is you that? work until you literally can't. Yeah, literally. Literally can't do it anymore. And like Amelia, the, the origin story of the book is Amelia being in grad school. Um, she's a choral conductor and classical music is as misogynist as any science and technology field. Um, and so like the stress of being in that doctoral program. And she remains the only woman ever to complete this particular program. It put her in the hospital twice. And she like, she was in school full-time working three part-time jobs with three teenage stepchildren. And she just pushed and pushed. She's like, I can get through it. It's fine. I'm going to do this. I'm going to push through it until she ended up like lying on the bathroom floor in so much pain. She literally thought she could die. This is the like, women don't listen to their bodies. Like her body was screaming and begging for help. And she was like, I have a to-do list and I'm not done yet. And therefore I cannot stop. And that's the origin of burnout. And then, I mean, I also have my own experiences. There was one really difficult semester where at the end of the semester, I thought either I need to take like a week-long vacation at a spa or I need to check myself in at an inpatient mental hospital. And that's the moment when I was like, my life might be out of balance. <laughs> you think? <laughs> maybe, maybe. If I'm thinking either like a whole week vacation or like I seriously need like clinical support every second of my day, that's not good. That's not a good sign. That's really right. Like I, I clearly went too far. I was not listening to what my body was telling me all along. But this is another example of like the path is in front of you and you're like, I'm just going to walk on the. I'm just going to walk through the fire because like that's my only path to getting to the place I want to go. Oh, not realizing that like punishment. Yeah. Totally self-taught. And the, there is another level of it. I mean, I live in the United States, born and raised here. I'm descended on both sides of my family, by my maternal and paternal line, either to people who own slaves or people uh, I'm related distantly to the guy whose idea it was to make the three-fifths compromise. We're in the constitution when you're counting the population of a state, uh, a slave counts as three-fifths of a person. Oh my God. Yeah, it's appalling. And I'm related to that guy. So like my white privilege in my nation, <laughs> when you think about what that actually means in terms of like grind culture, uh, and let me point to Trisha Hersey, who is the NAP bishop. Uh, you can find her online at the NAP ministry. She creates, she's a, not just like making up Nat Bishop. She went to divinity school. She is a minister and she creates public, well, when there were public installations, she creates public napping installations for black people in America. And it's commentary on, and also action against 
the labor stolen from the bodies of Black people in the United States as the foundation of our whole economy. That when we can celebrate and center the rest and joy of the Black people in the United States, because so many of them are descended from people who were stolen from their homes and forced to work. And if somebody owns your body, then if you rest, you are stealing from them because it's their body, not yours, right? Like this is the foundation of grind culture in the United States. And then you layer, I didn't mean to get all like super dark, but like super quickly, you add uh, the industrial revolution onto that. And all of us are now cogs who belong to a factory or a business. And our worth is literally measured by our labor instead of by our basic humanity. And no wonder we all feel well, not everyone, but a lot of us feel guilty for sleeping. Guilty. I mean, sleep is a basic biological need. Like you literally die without it. Yeah. And we feel guilty. Guilty. And like it's tied immediately to sex, partly because lack of sleep is a stressor which hits the brakes. But also one extra hour of sleep per night increases your likelihood of having sex the next night by 10%. Like we can see a direct correlation between like the better rested a person is, the more attuned to eroticism, pleasure and connection they are. And in order to access that, we have to dismantle <laughs> white supremacist, is heteropatriarchal, rapidly exploitative late capitalism. Yep. Like pleasure is the revolution as far as I'm concerned. Rest, as Trisha Hersey says, is the revolution. Like you're already making the world a better place if you recognize that your body as it is right now has permission to experience pleasure and joy. And yet we push ourselves so hard. We, so hard. We expect so much of ourselves. We apply so many rules to ourselves. And I mean, you're speaking from a US perspective and I'm sitting here in yeah. South Africa and I've worked in Australia and I've worked in London and shit, it's the These same. These are all, all complicated places, yeah. It's the same all over the world. And it's it's crazy to think that in my parents' generation and yeah, in my parents' generation, maybe in their parents' generation, if I just think about the kind of the, the stress levels, they obviously were very different stresses. My grandparents, I mean, that was World War II and things like that. So right. that was intense. No generation is trauma-free. No, oh, absolutely not. We, 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 have, inher we have inherited trauma and we have mm -hmm. experienced and lived through our own traumas as well. It's crazy that there is there has been such a shift in the expectations placed on us and our bodies over mm -hmm. time, particularly in, I'd say, the last 30, 30, even 20 years, maybe 10 years, even since the start of the you know 2000, early 2000s, the, the demands have never been greater. And yeah. I saw a fascinating a fascinating bit of research about the amount of working hours that people are putting in since lockdown started. And it terrified me to see how many more working hours people are putting in in the US and the UK than they were before. And the numbers to start off with pre-COVID were not good. They, no, were they're not, bad. they were not good for the human psyche. So if you were going to summarize burnout... In 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 a very short, you know, time period, yeah. is is that is that even possible? Um, 
what what do you want people to know about this book, the one that you did with you? Yeah. What's so important so, for people to know? Burnout is feeling overwhelmed and exhausted by everything you have to do while still worrying that you are not doing enough. The solution to burnout, well, the first step toward the solution is recognizing that biologically, evolutionarily, we've come to a place where the strategies that deal with the stress in our bodies are just entirely separate from the strategies that deal with whatever it is that caused or activated the stress in our bodies. Our stressors used to be lions and hippos and tigers and things, and now they are the pandemic and capitalism and our kids are just exhausting and overwhelming. And like, we've been locked in a house with our best friend, but oh my God, get me out. Right. <laughs> like, so those are our stressors and the way we deal with that, it turns out the solutions are not the same as what our body interprets as you have escaped this threat. So chapter one is all just strategies for completing the stress response cycle so that your body can return to stability. And some of those things will feel new to people. And a lot of them are like, oh, exercise is good for me. Thanks, Emily, for like making me pay $12 for a book to tell me exercise is good and sleep is good. But that's why there's a whole book is because we need to also talk about the barriers that stand between us and all that stuff we kind of already know we're supposed to be doing. So we figure out why it's so very important that we do that stuff. And then we name the enemy that's standing between us and our own well-being. And then we name the, and that enemy is uh, the patriarchy. Uh. <laughs> but then there's the solution. And it turns out the answer is that the cure for burnout isn't self-care. It can't be self-care because the whole point when you're burnt out is you have nothing left. So you can't take care of yourself. You have nothing left to give. Uh, which is why the solution to burnout has to be all of us caring for each other. So that when you get home from a long, hard day, and like, it's obvious that you had a long, hard day, nobody goes, oh, good, what's for dinner? Nobody uh, assumes that you're the one who's going to be getting up in the middle of the night to help anybody who's in distress. You get home and they're like, wow, you had a hard day. Go take a nap, take a shower. We will cook the dinner and then we'll sit around the table and talk about our feelings, which is super good. And all of us in this household are going to collaborate to make sure we protect the time and space required for you to get enough sleep so that everyone in your household is all collaborating together. They care about your well-being and they work to facilitate your well-being as much as you care about and work to facilitate their well-being. And that is burning. That's a 85,000 word book in a minute and a half. That was the most succinct synopsis I've ever heard, considering I've read the book. Um, I wish we could have gone into way, way, way more detail. And maybe, maybe you know, in the future, we'll just have to do a, a longer chat about it, which I would be. I would just add that the reason, like, it's the usual thing after a sex, a women's sexuality book would be a men's sexuality book or a couple's book or a relationship book. Um, and instead, I wrote a stress book because in 2015, the very as soon as Come As You Are came out, I was traveling around talking about the science of sexuality. And because the best predictor of a woman's sexuality is a uh, best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being is her overall well-being because context um, there's, there's this chapter on stress and body image and relationships and people kept saying, yeah, yeah, all that sex science is great. Arousal, non-concordance, responsive desire. Thanks. Thanks. But the chapter that changed everything for me was that one chapter about stress and feelings processing. 
Um, and it was when I told Amelia that, and she said, yeah, no shit. Remember when you taught me that stuff and it, you know, saved my life twice. That's when I was like, so we should write that book. We should write the book that you needed when you were lying on the floor in the bathroom in so much pain, you thought you were going to die. When the gynecological oncologists finally got hold of your book, what was the feedback? I don't know. I haven't like that was yeah. 2016. It was so long ago. <laughs> and the book didn't even come out until 2019. Yeah, because I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, when Amelia was saying to you, we need, you know, this, this is the this is what we need to do. This is the book we need to write. And I saw what was coming out that you you announced you were releasing this book. I I knew, I knew this was the book that we all had to read. And I've recommended it to so many people as I have come. I mean, it's a prerequisite to when you have therapy with me, it's my clients have to read your book and their partners have to read your book. So I wanted to tell you a funny story. I'm going to come loop back to it and um, talking about burnout. But a funny story is I had to phone um, kind of the main bookstore here, one of the main main bookstore chains here in South Africa. And I asked them if they had stock of Come As You Are. This must have been in 2018. And they said to me, no, but we've, we've in the last few months, we've had an exponential number of, of people inquiring about this book. You know, we only used to stock a copy or two in store, and we've had to change that in all of our bookstores. And I was like, oh, my bad. Sorry about that. I should have forewarned you. Um, anyway, thanks for that. Really glad that you've now got stock available of, of Emily's book. <laughs> So um, you're, because so, you're prescribing it to everyone. I prescribe it to everybody. So <sighs> I prescribe come as you are to everybody and the burnout as well, particularly in the last year, even more so in the last year, because I, I think that of all of my clients, 85% maybe stress-related difficulties that they're coming to see me for, stress-related Stress and context related. Stress caused you know, by context. I was reading an early draft of burnout to a group of women. And I was talking about this idea that like we push our bodies really hard and we don't listen to our body signals and we have to honor our body's need for rest. And like, here's what your body's need for rest truly is. And uh, her response was, uh, when I listen to that, all I can think is why can't my body do all the things I need it to do? Like it was her body's fault that it couldn't thrive in a context of deeply unrealistic expectations about what she was supposed to be accomplishing in a day, in a year, in her life, that it was her body's failure instead of it being the world's expectations being just totally bananas. I mean, the weight of that mental baggage, insane, totally. Yeah. I, I incorporated her feedback. Like you might be feeling like it's not fair that your body can't live according to the expectations. But when, when you have this disjunction between the expectations and what actually works for your body, the expectations are wrong. Your body is not wrong. The expectations are wrong, which it's in come as you are. And it's like extra in burnout because it turns out if we can like turn toward our limitations and our difficulties and the fact that we live in like these mammalian bodies the need rest and love and sleep and food and pleasure when we can welcome that reality that is the context that allows us to thrive sexually and overall in our lives i'm so devastated our time has come to an end 
because I've, I've had so many wonderful, incredible conversations for my podcast and I always wish there was more time, but today or tonight in particular, I would love, 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 love to keep this conversation going, but you've been so generous with your time. It's my favorite stuff to talk about too. Oh, good. I'm so glad. It's like people always say to me, oh, being a sexologist, that's such a cool job. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm basically just like a giant sex nerd. So yeah, Yeah. it's a cool job. Of course it's cool, but basically I'm just a big nerd. So, you know, I I wanted to ask you a question that I I ask all my guests and I'm going to give you the option to give me two separate answers because there are two two different books sitting in front of me that that have so many similarities, but yet at the same time are different. The question that I want to ask you is if there was only one thing you've learned from the work that you've done that you could share for the rest of your life, only one thing now, and that relates to human sexuality, female sexuality, pleasure, come as you are stuff and burnout You could give me one answer for each, or I don't know if they're going to be the same answer, but if there was only one thing that you've learned that you could share, what would it be? They're different for the different books, but they are related to each other. From Come As You Are, the thing I've learned uh, is that desire is beside the point. I know it's like the main reason people go to sex therapy, but it is we have put desire at the center of our sexual well-being, but the reality is that pleasure belong to the center of our sexual well-being. If we if you like the sex you are having, you are already doing it right. If you're interested in improving your sex life, the path to doing that is increasing the amount of pleasure that you experience. As Peggy Klein Plotz puts it, uh, the way if you want to experience greater sexual pleasure, you move yourself toward the edge of sex that is just safe enough. That's at the edge of what you and any partner are interested in experiencing. When you get to the edge of what is known about your body and your sexuality and your partner, and you hold hands with that person and you jump off the cliff into the unknown of your sexuality, that is where ecstatic pleasure happens. And pleasure is the part that matters. It's not about how much you crave sex. It's not how often you have it or who you have it with or where you have it or what positions or how many orgasms you have. It's whether or not you enjoy the sex you are having. What I learned from burnout, uh, so I was raised in this very dysfunctional family of origin uh, with an alcoholic, narcissistic asshole of a father and like all the dynamics that come with it. And part of what comes with that is you're not allowed to talk about your feelings uh, or tell anybody about what you're experiencing. Like you just like lock yourself into your own personal little box and get the fuck out as soon as you can. Um, And what I learned, we read all this very serious, hardcore affective neuroscience and two-person neuroscience, like really intense, difficult science. And what it kept saying was the answer is love. The answer is connection. The answer is sharing your goddamn stories. Like, talking about your feelings so amelia and i could no longer make a case for just living in your box and not talking about it so in the process of writing burnout we started telling each other the stories from our childhood all the stuff we were both there for but had never spoken to each other about all the isolation all the times when we 
could have and would have turned toward each other with kindness and compassion, but we weren't allowed to because we had to stay in our own box because that was the rule of the family. And as we like smashed down the wall that the rules of our family of origin had taught us, I discovered I had a sister, not just someone I was raised with, but someone I wanted to have in my life and grow old with. So what I learned writing Burnout is that uh, my family of origin was wrong. Connection is really hard, but it's worth it. And I am capable of it. That was a bigger answer than maybe you were looking for, but that's what I learned. That was the most powerful answer I've ever had, I've ever heard. And just the the passion and the emotion which you were displaying and sharing. But the crazy thing is that you're talking about releasing emotion and how powerful it is. And I read, I've been reading one of um, Edith Eager's books recently, The Gift, and she talks about how depression exists when there is no expression. And just hearing you with the sheer intensity of the experiences that you've had, you and Amelia, and how in a way through actually turning towards, as as the wonderful Brene Brown would say, I know you know her, turning towards it and actually leaning into it, it became the most healing thing for you and Amelia. So actually, while you've helped so many women across the world with with both of your books and with Burnout in particular, as we're speaking about, actually, I'm thinking that for you and Amelia, this was completing the stress response cycle in terms of siblings. I would actually say like we had both been walking on the path that was on fire because that's the one our family gave us. And writing the book was us digging our own path. And it was as difficult as I suggested it would be for folks experiencing sexual pain. It was not easy, but oh my God, is it so much better? So much better. So much better. (sighs) Wow. Like once I paint this room white, it's going to be so much better. (laughs) (laughs) It's just going to be a change once you are able to go, you know what? This is not working for me anymore. I need to. to Yes. It's a huge hassle to paint a room, but. It's cathartic. It. It's cathartic. Full circle. Full circle. Full circle. Exactly. I'm I'm so grateful that you've shared, you know, now so intimately and and so expertly for the last hour with me on on everything and anything when it comes to sex and stress and pleasure and uh the the cultural heteronormative, the patriarchy, all of it. There's there's so much in it that I think that the the best thing I can do to end off this episode is to say, I know your brain wants to take you down the path, but as you've said, it's on fire and actually you don't have to go that way. You can go another mm-hmm. way. It's okay. You can go a different route to get to the place you want to get to. Thank you for being here with me. And I'm going to link everything about you, all your, your websites and your, your blog and your books and everything in the show notes. Is there, is there any particular place you'd like people to be able to reach you or, or that you prefer? I would just say, if you could also link to Trisha Hersey, the Nat Bishop, in addition yeah. to whatever, like my book, like I, I just want everyone to follow her and listen to what she has to say and 
let it change their lives because it changed mine. I'll definitely put it in the show notes. Emily, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it. This episode was sponsored by Desir. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code for a friend.